Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. A decade into the leadership of Xi Jinping, China is better positioned than ever to realize its grand ambitions. Indeed, it seems to have even greater potential to transform global affairs than at any stage since it began to open up to the outside world. We often hear it said that China is ambitious and assertive on the foreign policy front. Yet how well do we really understand the objectives of Xi Jinping's foreign policy? Beyond the wolf warrior rhetoric and promises of win-win partnerships, what does China ultimately want in the world? These are questions which have been on the mind of Dr. Bates Gill, Professor of Asia-Pacific Security Studies at Macquarie University in Sydney, and the inaugural Scholar-in-Residence with the Asia Society of Australia. Bates, welcome back to China in Context. It's good to speak with you again. Thank you very much, Duncan. You've written a new book. I very much like the title, Daring to Struggle, China's Global Ambitions Under Xi Jinping. It's going to be published by Oxford University Press in May this year. I want to start by focusing on what you describe as the most important objective driving China's foreign policy. That, you say, is maintaining and bolstering the legitimacy and survival of the Chinese Communist Party. Can you tell us why legitimacy is so important? Well, the Chinese Communist Party is an unelected, Leninist-style authoritarian state. It cannot discern its degree of popularity or its possible future uh, via the ballot box. Uh, it can only do so by trying to propagate an image and an understanding of its role in ways amongst its population that, that, that maintains a kind of mandate for power. I mean, how else do they justify that they get to run the country other than because uh, we happen to control the gun? Even the most authoritarian leaders want to try and convince their population that they're the better choice uh, versus other options. What I try to do in the book is, is explain that while that is primarily a domestic concern, it is also increasingly one that Xi Jinping uh, is trying to also express and achieve on the international front to gain the respect and even approbation and appreciation of foreign governments for the role of the Chinese Communist Party as the unchallenged leader of the People's Republic. Ah, well, what you say fits in very nicely with something which I discussed during a meeting with the director of the SOAS China Institute, Professor Steve Sang, the other day. He said to me that China and the US are in a beauty contest. The judges, uh, that's the people in the rest of the world, are invited to view these two societies and choose which one they find the most attractive. <laughs> now, I did wonder if Professor Sang's actually been to a beauty contest recently. I think they've fallen out of fashion a bit. Nevertheless, I like his metaphor. And in your book, you endeavor to explain why China thinks it has beautiful politics. And you make the important point that China does long for acceptance and appreciation by foreign governments. But as we noted in our previous podcast, when we were talking about Australia, where you are, 
that's definitely not been the case in terms of successive governments in Australia. Can you say more about that? If it is the case that China, especially under Xi Jinping, has been trying to promote uh, its form of governance uh, as being legitimate, uh, it ought to be more accepted, it should be certainly at, at the minimum respected, uh, even appreciated for some of the accomplishments that it's made, it often strikes us, uh, especially in the liberal democratic world, that they're going about it in a very funny way. Being so critical of democratic systems, of the whole wolf warrior diplomacy effort, uh, or even worse, you know, not really attempting soft power at all, uh, but trying to use more coercive uh, efforts or, or perhaps economic inducements, bribery, uh, in order to not so much gain approbation, but at least gain uh, acceptance and respect. At the end of the day, the effort to pursue China's national interests as they understand them isn't really so much to garner the support and appreciation of foreigners, although if they can get it, that's great. It's really about bolstering the party's position domestically, appealing to that long-term narrative that the Communist Party has always turned to at various times, you know, for a hundred years now, that it alone is capable of ridding China of malign foreign influences, it alone is capable of achieving ultimately the core national interests of China, such as regaining Taiwan. And if in the process of doing so, it means alienating key foreign partners, well, so be it. You've gathered a lot of information on how China promotes its agenda internationally. I really admire your research on organizations such as the United Front Work Department and the Central Propaganda Department. What would you say are the big ideas which Xi Jinping is seeking to promote through those organizations? I think the most important one is the Chinese Communist Party deserves respect and appreciation for the accomplishments which it has made in terms of modernizing China, uh, bringing you know, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. From that big idea flows another. There is not one way to rule a people. Uh, there is not one accepted sort of end of history ideal uh, as to how the relationship between government and governed should operate. And this, of course, is, I think, a rather blatant effort, obviously, to you know, position the, the party, a one-party authoritarian form of rule as, as just as legitimate as any other. As a result, nations should be left alone to judge on the basis of their own histories and cultures just how they choose to handle the governance within their own borders. In other words, leave us alone. Don't criticize us. Don't try to undermine us. Don't intervene, as they would say, in the internal affairs of China. You know, these are not new ideas. Xi Jinping's predecessors have stated similar thoughts. What's different now is that China has at its disposal far greater resources and political, economic, diplomatic, and military means to promote and, if necessary, enforce these 
ideas in ways that China simply has not had before. The question I think we face uh, as we deal with China is whether we're prepared to go along with that ideological framework of how the world should work, or if we think we can't accept it. Now, one of the themes we often discuss on this podcast is President Xi's ambition to build up the People's Liberation Army. He said he's going to use it as a world-class military. You're saying in the book that China's been using military coercion as an instrument of foreign policy. I'm a bit confused because there haven't been any wars. Why are you saying this? Well, it's true that China has not fought a, a real battle, a real war, uh, a major war with, a, with, with one of its neighbors since the mid-1980s, early to mid-1980s, as the border skirmishes with Vietnam wound down. But in that subsequent 40 years, China has built a major military capability and increasingly willing to wield that capability in ways that either threaten or deter its neighbors, including, I would say, even the United States, around major questions of national interest for China. So in the South China Sea, for example, without firing a shot, they've been able to expand their military footprint. You know, they've for 40 years used quite blatant military capability and coercion to try and deter any move by Taiwan towards de jure independence. Uh, And that's expanded, I think, to even now encompass other states in the region, Japan and the United States, uh, forcing them to think twice about the degree to which they would care to get involved militarily with China on matters that China finds highly sensitive. I'm interested to know how much of your view of China is shaped by your exposure to the media in Australia and indeed political debate there. Are you following the line of the Australian government in Canberra? How independent are you, Bates? You know, I'm not working for the Australian government. I'm an academic and I've uh, you know, tried my hardest uh, to be as independently minded as I can be. Uh, I have to say my own view towards China over the past 10 or 20 years has, I think, sadly changed as I've become increasingly concerned with the direction of that country uh, in terms of its political governance, uh, in terms of its um, uh, relationships with its near neighbors. And it saddens me, quite honestly, because I've, I've spent many, many years living and working in China. I've probably made close to 100 visits there. I have a lot of close friends. Uh, And of course, it's been a a professional and personal honor and delight to come to understand or try to understand uh, a country such as China. Um, But I think my view uh, is probably not that different from a lot of others that have tried to follow China over the past 30 or 40 years with our increasing concern about the direction that the country has taken, especially over the past 10 years. Even though you work as a university professor, I'm pretty sure this book is not just a reference work, which is going to be left to gather dust on the shelves of a library. What you're offering readers is a way of understanding China's foreign policy ambitions, because you want your research to be a guide to policy. So briefly, finally, what are your recommendations in terms of policy? Well, you're right, Duncan. Uh, this book is really intended for a quite broad readership of interested observers, uh, both you know, professional China analysts, but I think I'm, I'm hopeful it'll reach a, a wider 
audience and and try, I try to write it in a style that's engaging and, and will hopefully capture people's attention. We've known about China as an economic competitor for decades already. Over the past decade or so, we've increasingly come to understand China as a military competitor. I think we need to be far more aware that we are entering a kind of ideological competition, or maybe put it a better way, a competition of ideas with China going forward. Um, and you know, as a policy recommendation, what that means, I think, is that we in the liberal democratic world have to get our own domestic houses in order and begin to sharpen our narrative about why our form of governance, if it can be reformed and improved, let's do it, but uh, all the more so be prepared to engage in a competition uh, with China, because that is certainly where they are headed. Um, I also argue that we can gain a great deal more by finding greater common ground with uh, countries around China's periphery who share concerns that those of us in Australia or the United States or in the UK might have about China, uh, but who have to be a lot more cautious and balanced in how they exercise and act on that concern because they're neighbors of China and in many cases are close economic, uh, even political partners with them. And then finally, this is not to say that we throw out the whole idea of collaboration or cooperation with China, certainly not. I was encouraged, at least slightly, uh, by some of the efforts underway now, even between China and the United States, to find areas of common ground, for example, around matters of, of climate change there are a lot of big problems in the world. China is going to be a major factor in both generating those problems, but also in resolving them. Any future strategy that ignores that or thinks that we can solve many of these challenges without seeking and hopefully gaining cooperation from China in doing so, I just don't think can succeed. Thank you, Bates. That was Bates Gill, author of Daring to Struggle, China's Global Ambitions under Xi Jinping, which will be published by Oxford University Press in May 2022. Bates, when it's published, do please join us at our university. I'd love to introduce you to our students and to our scholars so that we can talk about it further. It'd be a pleasure, Duncan. Thank you very much. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London, and you can find out more about our courses and so on on our website, soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from the China in Context podcast team. Thank you.